Good morning, church. If you'd like to open your Bibles with me to Matthew 14, verses 22 through 26, or read along on the bulletin. Immediately after this, Jesus made his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Afterward, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. At about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him, they screamed in terror, thinking he was a ghost. May God bless the reading of his word. It's a ghost! Wow. Gene, thanks for doing our reading this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we like it better when the storms are over. We don't like it so much when we're going through them. And yet you use those storms in our lives, potentially to draw us to you, to get our attention, to perfect us, to give us opportunity to be more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for the storm that Caleb went through and you've used it in his life and the life of his family. We celebrate one year, Lord, of being done with chemo and being cancer-free. We give you the praise and thanks for that, Lord Jesus. Lord, we think of the storms that some of us in this room are going through. They're not over yet. And Lord, we pray you'd use those storms to reveal yourself. To make yourself better known, to perfect us, and make us more like Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are not in this room who might be going through storms. There's a storm of deployment, and we pray for those who are deployed to know you better. The storms of going off to school, being challenged by the world. We pray that our students would walk with God wherever they are. Lord, some are going through a storm of a health crisis. They can't even be here this morning. They're at home sick or perhaps in a hospital room. And we pray, Lord, you reveal yourself to them in their storm. Lord, some are going through financial storms, relational storms, health storms, whatever the storms might be today. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, we also pray now that the Spirit of God, the third member member of the Holy Trinity, would speak through me and the Word of God for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray this morning, amen. If you take out your outlines, you'll see that uh, there's a section called Really Exciting Background Info. I thought that might help. Um, the first part of the sermon, like the first two-thirds, is that section there where there's no blanks to fill in. There's just a big blank for you to write exciting stuff that I say. So I'm expecting you to write exciting stuff that I say. And then after that, we'll look at where is Jesus during your crisis, and we'll have some blanks to fill in. But I'll tell you when we get to the blanks, so you don't have to, like, elbow your partner there next to you or your neighbor and say, hey, what was that? Because I haven't gotten to that yet. It's going to take a while to get there. Because we want to start this morning with a story that I read in one of Max Lucado's books 
great Christian author, and he tells the story of Chippy the parakeet. And everything was going fine for Chippy the parakeet until Chippy's owner decided that she would clean his cage with the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, that's what I thought, oh. And thinking that this would speed things up and be easier, she got the vacuum out and took the attachment off the hose, stuck the hose in the cage with Chippy still in the cage, turned on the vacuum, and everything was going fine until the phone rang. And then holding the vacuum cleaner hose with one hand, reaching for the phone with the other, she says, hello, and suddenly, soop, Chippy's gone. So she throws down the phone, she turns off the vacuum cleaner, opens it up, grabs the bag, rips it open, and thankfully, there's Chippy, still alive, but stunned and covered with soot. So being a loving bird owner, she tenderly scooped up Chippy and ran to the bathroom and held him under the faucet to clean him up. Well, now he's not only stunned, but he's shivering. So... She looks around the bathroom, the blow dryer. So she grabs the blow dryer and and then put Chippy back in the cage. A couple days later, the friend that was on the phone who sort of heard this from a distance asked, how's Chippy doing? And the owner said, well, he doesn't sing much anymore. (laughs) He just sits on his perch and stares. This morning, when we were singing, maybe you felt like Chippy. Uh, Maybe you didn't feel like singing, and maybe you're going through something, and you just kind of sat there and stared, as the rest of us say. How was your week? (laughs) Maybe it's been a tough week for you. Maybe it's been a tough month. Some of you are saying it's been a tough year. Some of you feel like it's been a tough life. You know, somewhere... Along the way, we Christians got this false idea that when we became Christians, everything would go smoothly. And you might have gotten that from a pastor who gave you that false idea. And he was mistaken that just because you become a Christian doesn't mean the storms stop, doesn't mean that the trials stop. In fact, that's just wishful thinking. That's not divine revelation. If you take the lives of the 12 disciples, for example, once they met Jesus, their lives got worse. In some ways, their lives got harder in some ways. I mean, they spent more time with Jesus than anybody else on the planet once he was an adult. And and they heard his words, his teaching. They had his guidance. They saw his miracles. But if you look at their lives, their lives got harder and harder to the point that many of them were tortured and most of them were martyred once they came to know Jesus Christ. Just coming to know Jesus Christ doesn't end the storms. Some of you are in a storm right now, crying out to the Lord. And today we're going to continue in our series, Encountering Jesus. And we've seen different people and what's happened when they've encountered Jesus. They might have experienced His, His grace, that forgiveness that they didn't deserve, but they certainly needed. They, they might have ex- experienced His compassion, His, His pain in their hearts. Today we want to see what I think is one of the most unusual encounters with Jesus recorded in the Scriptures. And you've heard it perhaps so many times that you kind of overlook how unusual it is, but it's a near-death experience. It's a frightening experience for those who are in it. And it's recorded in three out of the four Gospels that we have. 
It may seem common to us because we've read it so many times, but it's anything but common to the people going through it. The people going through it thought they were dying. You've been there. I'm dying here, Lord. But he knows otherwise. You're not really dying because of that situation, but it may feel like it. And in this encounter with Jesus, the people involved thought they were not dying, but Jesus knew otherwise. We're going to pick up this crisis in the middle of the crisis in Matthew chapter 14. Because it's in the middle of the crisis that Jesus is most likely going to be able to get our attention. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. The middle of the crisis. We start with the word but. Matthew 14, 24, but the boat was already many stadia. Stadia is about 600 feet, so many stadia is maybe 1,800 feet or so away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking upon the sea. Now you hear walking upon the sea, and you read that casually, like, oh, of course Jesus walks on the sea. Well, he'd never walked on the sea before. Nobody would ever heard of him walking on the sea before. Nobody would seen him walking on the sea before. Your unbeliever friend, they know about walking on the sea. In fact, they might have even teased you. Oh, I bet you you can walk on water or something like that. We've all heard of that. But the people in the boat had never heard of it. They've never read this story. They hadn't been through it before. This is something new and unusual. When you're studying the Bible, it's important to pay attention to details. And the more you pay attention to details, the more you're going to get out of your Bible reading and study. One of the details in this passage, it says it's the fourth watch. Now, most of us will just read that and go, oh, the fourth watch. And if you happen to have a paraphrase like was read earlier in the service, then it might tell you what time of day that is. But if you just read fourth watch, you go, oh, fourth watch and have no idea what that is. Unless, of course, you're used to the Roman way of reckoning time. The Romans reckoned the evening in four watches. The first watch in Roman reckoning was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. midnight. The second watch was from 9 p.m. to 12 midnight. The third watch from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. So if this is the fourth watch, we know that it's sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Have you ever noticed that your problems are always worse at night? You go to bed and all of a sudden your day racing through your mind. Everything that happened and the person who said this and this event. And it just seems worse at night. And Maybe you finally fall asleep. But if you fall asleep and then you wake up at 3 in the morning and you're, oh, the crisis and what you got to do that day. And since you can't fall back to sleep. The crisis always looks better. I mean, looks sorry, it looks better in the morning, but it always looks worse at night. Well, why are these men in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. I mean, I know that most of them are fishermen, and and fishermen would be in a boat at night to catch fish, but they're not all fishermen. The whole group is in the boat. Why are they in a boat at night? Well, before we answer that question, I'd like us to look at another detail to answer another question. And that is, 
How long have they been in the boat? When did they get in this boat? Well, backing up in our story, in chapter 14 of Matthew, looking at verse 22, it says in verse 22, And immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after Jesus had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Well, if Jesus put them in the boat, and then he went to pray, and Jesus is praying in the evening, we know that they got in the boat sometime in the evening. Well, when is that? Well, the Jews had two evenings every day. The first evening was at 3 p.m., and the second evening was at sunset. And that's why, if you read this story closely, you'll see just before this event, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people in the evening, it says. Well, 5,000 men. Well, where there's 5,000 men, there's often 5,000 women. And where there are 5,000 men and 5,000 women, there's often 10,000 children. So we don't know how many people were there, but we know there were probably 10, 15, there could have been 20,000 people that he just miraculously fed, and he fed them, and it says in the text there, if you read it, in the evening. This is the first Jewish evening. This is about 3 p.m. Well, if you're feeding upwards of 20,000 people and you have 12 disciples to distribute it, it takes some time. It takes time for 20,000 people to eat, and then it takes time for your 12 disciples to go out with baskets and gather up all the fragments, and then it takes time to disperse 20,000 people. So by this time, it's the second evening. It's around sunset, and Jesus sends his disciples off in a boat. Well, if it's sunset, let's guess it's somewhere maybe around 6 p.m. If it's 6 p.m., when he puts them in the boat, and if they're in the boat in our story between 3 and 6 a.m., that means they've been in this boat for da, 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 how long? Somewhere between 9 and 12 hours. That's a mighty long crisis before they encountered Jesus. How long has your storm been going? I know exactly how long your storm's been going. Longer than you wanted. That's how long they go. They last longer than we want. And this storm they're in, whether it lasted six hours, nine hours, twelve hours, I don't know exactly, but it's longer than they wanted. They're afraid for their lives. These were seasoned fishermen, some of them. Some of them had been in storms, and even they thought the storm was more than they could handle. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm at sea. When I was a young, naive Navy chaplain, reporting aboard my first Navy ship, a guided missile cruiser, which is not a big ship, I met the captain enthusiastically. I greeted him, and I said, oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to see. I can't wait to see a storm. You should have seen the expression on his face. A man of experience at sea, he looked at me and he said, Chaplain, you don't want to see a storm. All of a sudden, I didn't want to see a storm. (laughs) Somewhere between Honolulu and Subic Bay, the Philippines, I got to see a storm. Oh, what a storm. We were in a storm where the ship was taking these rolls, and it rolled up to a 40-degree angle. 
At 45, the ship has a choice whether it's going to go upright or upside down. It's quite... You don't know if you're going to walk on the deck or the bulkhead, which is the wall, because the ship's going like this. And you can't sleep when the ship's doing that. You can hardly eat. The cooks can't cook. And this went on for day after day. after. It went on for seven days. The air of the ship was filled with clanging and banging and sailor language. (laughs) And that's when I heard it. Over the ship's intercom that goes over the entire ship, 450 men all hear the same thing. Chaplain Alexander, captain's cabin on the double. Great. That doesn't usually happen when you've done something good. So, I'm walking this deck that's rolling and it's pitching and I'm trying, banging off, you know, the bulkheads, climbing up the ladder that's swaying. I finally get to the captain's cabin and I knock on the door and he tells me to come in and he looks at me with an expression that is not a happy one and says, this is all your fault! You wanted to see a storm. This is a storm. Now make it stop. So I prayed and the storm stopped. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Eventually. (laughs) Uh, Disciples wanted the storm to stop. Eventually, it stopped. Eventually, Jesus showed up. But instead of being relieved when Jesus showed up, they were scared to death and they screamed, It's a ghost. Once again, we find that details are important. That word ghost in the Greek is not the word that's translated Holy Ghost in the King James or Holy Spirit perhaps in your translation. It's a Greek word, phantasma. And phantasma, we get the English word phantom from that. It means apparition. Apparition or ghost. When they saw Jesus, Jewish culture taught of an angel of death. We would call him the grim reaper. They saw Jesus in the middle of their crisis. They thought they were dying, and they thought the angel of death had come to claim their souls. You're in a crisis. You probably think it's worse than it is. Don't miss seeing Jesus in the midst of your crisis. He's there. When we need Him most, be assured He is there. So, how did did the disciples get into this mess in the first place? Well, let's find out, verse 22 of Matthew's Gospel. Verse 22 says, And immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. That's not the normal Greek word for make or to do something. It's the Greek word which means compel, urge, insist. It can even mean force. He made them. He forced them. He ordered them into the boat. 
Why? Well, see, he did that in order to protect them. To protect them from something even worse. He compelled them. He forced them. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, John describes an event, the same event, in detail and adds some other details. And John says this, the people, after Jesus fed this crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 people, John says, were intending to come to take Jesus by force to make him king. By force. 20,000 people, let's say, against Jesus and 12 disciples. Potential for quite a disturbance, perhaps a riot. And Jesus wants to get the disciples away from the mass of people who are about to forcefully make him king because they fed him and they want to make him king of their stomachs. So Jesus orders the disciples into the boat to get away from the crowd. So where is Jesus during your crisis? Here's where you get to fill in some blanks. Number one, he's protecting you. It may not feel like it, but he's protecting you. He's protecting you. And he may be protecting you from something even worse. We've all heard the stories of the person who who was rushing to the airport and got caught in a traffic jam, and they're probably praying that they can get out of the traffic jam, and they can't, and they miss their flight. And it turns out it's a good thing they missed that flight. Or some other crisis that you have that happens and then you discover it's good that I wasn't there or didn't do this instead. We have a promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Many of you memorized it as a child or maybe when you first became a believer. In 1 Corinthians 10.13 it says, No temptation has overtaken you. And the word temptation in Greek can be translated either test or temptation. It means both. When the devil uses something in your life as a solicitation to do evil, it's a temptation. When the Lord uses something in your life to help you grow in Christ, it's a test. But it might be the same event. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is as common to man. You can't say, well, no one has ever experienced anything like this. Well, of course they have. Your experience is common to human nature. And God is faithful in that test, in that temptation. He's faithful in your crisis. He's faithful in your storm. He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. You're going to get through it. He's protecting you from it being worse. But with the test and temptation, will provide the way of escape. And you go, yes, I get to escape it. Well, that's not exactly what it means, because the next line says that you may be able to endure it. There's an escape, but it's at the end, after you've endured the storm. Not more than you can handle, though. As I mentioned, three out of the four gospel writers mention this story. And in the Gospel of Mark, if you'll turn there, chapter 6, We are told specifically what Jesus was doing while the disciples were in their crisis. 
While they were battling the storm, let's see what Jesus was doing in Mark 6, 45. In verse 45 of Mark 6, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. To pray. Jesus is not only protecting you in your crisis, but the second thing we see, he's praying for you in your crisis. He's praying for you. While they were in their storm, Jesus was praying. And this is not just some quick prayer. We Americans have this, to me, annoying habit of saying, real quick. Now that I mention that, you're going to hear it. We say, hey, I'm just going to run the store real quick. Oh, I have to use the bathroom real quick. Whoever says, I have to use the bathroom slowly, and da, 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 you just say real quick, you know? <coughs> and, hey, kids, clean up your room real quick. And we do everything real quick. Well, that bothers me for a couple reasons. One, it's bad grammar. It's an adverb. It should be real quickly, okay? So say real quickly, not real quick. But we say real quick. Run to Starbucks real quick, whatever it is. And then someone's going on a deployment, and they're leaving. She's going, hey, let me pray for you real quick. Well, I don't want a real quick prayer when I'm going on deployment. I want you on your knees and praying for everything that could possibly happen. Or if you're sick and you visit someone in the hospital, you go, hey, let me pray for you real quick. Or someone's having a marital crisis. They might have a divorce. You go, let me pray for you real quick. Should be quickly. But, But why pray real quick? We do everything real quick. Let's go back to the text real quick. <laughs> uh, this is no quick prayer. How long has Jesus been praying? Well, if the disciples have been in the storm for 9 to 12 hours, Jesus has been praying for 9 to 12 hours. How do I know that? Well, I says he went up to the mountain to pray, and he went to pray in the evening after he sent them off. And we don't hear from him again until he's walking on water. Imagine if in the middle of your business crisis, Jesus walks into your office, sits down across from your desk, and says, let me pray for your business. And he knows every detail of your business and every challenge and problem you're having and every person that's causing you difficulty, and he prays about it. Imagine you're in the hospital, had a lot of tests. Maybe the doctors know what's wrong, maybe they don't. Imagine Jesus walking in and he sits on the side of your hospital bed, puts his hand on you, and he does not say, let me pray for you real quick. He says, let me pray, and he prays, and he prays for every doctor by name, every nurse by name, every attendant by name. He prays for every body part by name, that he knows is affected. He prays for you and your heart. He mentions every feeling that you have. He mentions everybody in your life that's being affected by what you're going through. He offers comfort, understanding, wisdom in prayer. Imagine you're having some relational things, and Jesus comes and sits on your couch in the living room, puts his arm around you, and he knows everything you're feeling, 
And he prays just what you need to hear. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, he is. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us that's what he's doing. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we have Jesus being compared to the Old Testament priests. And the Old Testament priests were prefigured some things that Jesus would do, but they were inferior. They were human. They died. They failed. But Jesus doesn't die. He doesn't fail. And in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Hence, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives, always lives, to do what? To make intercession for them. The Old Testament priests would make intercession while they were alive, and they'd do it once a year, go into the atonement, they'd offer for sins. They were sporadic. But Jesus isn't sporadic. Jesus isn't real quick. Jesus is living forever to intercede for you. He is praying for you. Speaking to the Heavenly Father on your behalf. He knows every detail, every feeling, every potential possibility in the situation. He's praying for your best. Not for what is easiest, but for what is best for you. He's protecting you. He's praying for you in your crisis. We learned something else from Mark's Gospel in chapter 6, verses 47 and 48. Mark 6, verse 47, And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on land. And then Mark adds something we didn't know already. He says this, And seeing them straining at the oars, straining at the oars. The word straining means tormented or harassed. It doesn't just mean, oh, they're pulling hard. It means they're pulling for their lives. Straining at the oars, for the wind was contrary against them at about the fourth watch of the night, between three and six in the morning. He came to them walking on the sea. No one's ever heard of that before. And then it says, He intended to pass by them. Now, this doesn't mean he's going, don't look at the guys in the boat, don't look at the guys in the boat. You know, don't look at... <laughs> it probably means he passed alongside them, like he's not going to jump in the bow of the boat that's going, he's going alongside the boat, he's going to step in. So he's walking up, he comes alongside the boat. He knew what they were going through, and he gets to the boat, and he steps in. And there's a miracle, and the storm is calm. But why did he let them go through this? Well, Mark helps us understand. Beginning as 40, verse 49. Verse 49 of Mark, it says, When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. Now notice verse 52. This is really important. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They had just had a mountaintop experience with Jesus doing this wonderful miracle of feeding 
5, 10, 15, 20,000 people, and it says here they didn't get it. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand who did the miracle. You know, when Jesus blesses us and things are going well, we tend not to give him credit. Hey, look how smart I am. <laughs> look how hard I work. Look how fortunate I am. Look how blessed I am. Look how well I did this. It's in the crisis they were more likely to see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus in the blessing. They needed the crisis in order to see him. What is Jesus doing? Well, third thing we see that Jesus is perfecting you in your crisis. He's perfecting you. He's doing something that he can't do without the crisis. To perfect you, to make you more like Jesus Christ. Notice what Matthew adds to this in his gospel. Matthew 14, verses 32 and 33. Matthew 14, verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And then notice verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They didn't say that after he did the blessing. They didn't worship him and say, this is certainly God's son. It took the crisis for them to understand that Jesus is the son of God. I prefer the blessings, but I need the crisis, and so do you, so we can know Jesus better. We need the storms. Whatever your storm you're going through today, or will go through tomorrow or the next day, remember that Jesus, he's protecting you. You won't go through more than you can handle with Jesus. And he might be protecting you from something worse. And he's praying for you. And he's praying for exactly what you need, not necessarily what you want. And he's perfecting you. He's helping you become more like Jesus Christ. And as you know, that's the plan. That's God's plan for your life to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes so you can have a private moment. But I'd like to invite you still to listen. Have you invited Jesus into your boat? What I mean by that is, have you recognized that He's the Savior, that He died for your sins on the cross, that He conquered death and rose from the grave. And have you invited Him into your life to be your Savior from sin and to give you eternal life? If you've never done that, cry out to Him now and say, Lord Jesus, I recognize who You are. Please save me. And He will. If you're in a crisis right now, Give that crisis to Jesus and pray something like, Lord Jesus, help me to see you in this crisis. Lord Jesus, give me the strength by your Spirit to endure. Lord Jesus, perfect me in this crisis.
Help me to be more like Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. If you're here and you've received Jesus today or sometime recently, that's the greatest decision you could ever make. Please tell someone. We'd love to hear about it. If you're like me, um, of course, I heard the sermon three times, but it just takes me back to 2014 when I was going through a really gnarly storm. And when you're in it, you're in it. And so um, I know some of you are going through some gnarly things right now, and my heart just goes out to you. Um, this benediction in First Thessalonians five twenty three, it's so wild because it calls God the God of peace, but it also says sanctify you entirely. And I'm like, ooh, I don't, I don't like the sound of that. Um, but for holiness' sake, for the, for the Lord, for, for His kingdom, for heaven, to be ready for heaven. Then I, this is the perfect. Uh, benediction for today. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.